Well, what is the heart? In the Bible, that's referenced over a thousand different times about the heart and different components of the heart and different ways that the heart functions. But what is the heart? It's a question that's worth asking because if you ask a hundred Christians about what is the heart, you would probably get a hundred different answers as to exactly what it is and what it means. So we're going to examine that here this morning. And um, we're going to examine that here this morning. So consider this a couple of phrases. Someone said to you, hey, I like what you did, but this time I want you to do it with heart. What do they mean by that? Usually they say, well, I want you to do it with some emotion, do it with some feeling. Okay. Or another phrase, what if somebody said this? You know, that person, they've got head knowledge, but what they really need is heart knowledge. We would understand that there's information that the person has, and it's not really penetrating them. It needs to be lived out in their life, right? Or you might have heard sometimes Christians say, I say it myself, I think I've used it in sermons before, to say that the longest distance on earth is the 18 inches that it takes to go from a person's head to their heart. Now, using any of these expressions is, is fine if you understand the biblical teaching. The challenge with them, though, is that if you don't understand what the Bible says about this, these phrases probably just further your own confusion on it. Because you would not find a biblical author that would use the heart in any of the phrases that are listed there on the screen. So what is the heart? Let's dive into this and understand it. God calls us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And he says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. God calls us that, that from our heart, that would be the center of our being, the center of our relationship with God, that there is to be a love for God that consumes our entire, that consumes our entire being. In the biblical usage, the word for heart and the idea of the heart refers to the totality of a person's being. The heart is the center of their emotions. It's the center of their intellect. It's the center of their volition. It's the center of their relational life. It is the very, it is the locus of a person's relationship with God. This has profound implications for how you understand the Bible, how you relate in the world, how you seek to have change in your life. It has profound implications for the way you parent and the way that you seek to bring about change or persuade another person. So let's understand what the Bible says about the heart and how the heart functions. It is indeed the one place that is our, that, that where our relationship with God is based. If someone puts their faith in Christ, Christ dwells in their heart through faith. And similarly, it is in their heart that God sends his spirit to reside inside of them. We're going to go over a whole bunch of different Bible verses in the next couple of minutes. And so if you're one that likes to take notes, probably today's not the day to do that. Uh, but instead, I just want you to ga gather, as opposed to trying to write this stuff down, is that you would gather the overall impression of what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches about this, how it is the center of our relationship with God. It's also identified in Scripture that when there is a person that is not worshiping God, it is identified as a problem in their heart. Ezekiel 14 very clearly describes mankind's problem when he says, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts, 
and set a stumbling block of their impurity before their faces. What has happened, though, when people have turned away from the Lord, where they have turned away from the Lord is in their hearts. And if they're worshiping something else and desiring something else, the place that it occurs is inside of their hearts. It is the person's orientation towards God. Now, different people try to come up with different ways of describing the heart and the way that the heart functions. Some of them are more or less biblical. I'm about to give you a characterization of this. That's one characterization that works. There's others that work, but this one works as well. This isn't the definitive answer on this. But the biblical picture of the heart is that inside of the heart, in unity, contained within the heart, exists a person's mind, that the mind is inside the heart. A person's conscience is inside the heart. Their will is inside the heart. And their passions and their deep desires are inside the heart. What this, where we see a variety of these things. Because the mind is in the heart, for the heart can believe, the heart can ponder, the heart can um, meditate, the heart can curse, the heart itself can doubt, the heart can plan, the heart can know, the heart itself can be deceived. All of these things, as cognitive intellectual functions, occur within the heart. That's a major shift from Western thought. We tend to think of the mind as being the rational portion of our body and the heart being the emotional portion. The Bible sticks the two of these things together. and It even identifies that your condition of your heart determines how clearly you think. And the condition of your heart... Um, informs what you think about and the priority of the principles that you hold to. Ephesians 4 gives a good picture of the relationship between the mind and the heart. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Now why? Why is their thinking so confused? Why is, their, why is their mental processing so messed up? Because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. What has become callous? Their hearts. And given themselves up to sensuality to greedy pra- and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The condition of a person's heart, of a person's heart drives, shapes, perverts, or clarifies a person's thinking and clarifies their mind. But these other things are inside the heart too, such as the conscience. The conscience, Romans 2.15 says this, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. How? Because while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts excuse or even, ex- or, or even excuse them. That the conscience within the heart is the one place that determines a person's relationship with God. How much in conformity to God's law or out of conformity with God's law they really are. And so the Bible describes the heart in a variety of different ways with a variety of different problems. When David was convicted of his sin of cutting off the garment of Saul's robe, it was said that his his heart struck him. His conscience felt guilty. But at other times a person's conscience can become seared. That is, when a person habitually does 
disobeys God's word, when a person habitually sins and ignores their conscience, their conscience and their heart become seared so that they no longer feel guilty when they should feel guilty. They become callous and hardened. But there's also problems is that a conscience can be weak within the heart, meaning that someone feels guilt for things that they shouldn't feel guilt for. And a conscience itself can condemn someone wrongly, even though they've done things wrong, if they're trusting in Christ, their conscience can wrongly condemn them. So, that's one other component of it. But it also flows over as a piece of the heart altogether, and we need to understand this altogether, is that the will is also inside of the heart. It is the heart that purposes, the heart that intends, it is the heart that decides, the heart that acts. Proverbs 25 tells us that the purpose, there is purpose in a man's heart. It's like deep water. Also tells us in Genesis that the Lord saw that every intention of the thought was only evil continually. That the heart intends, it decides, there is purpose in what it does. And Luke, Jesus tells us himself that it is out of a person's heart, the good person, out of the good that is within his heart produces good, and the evil person out of this evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The heart, all of these different things are coming out of the heart and flowing from the heart. Let's take a look at the final characteristic, the passions of the heart. The passions are the deepest and most fundamental. It contains strong emotions, godly and ungodly desires, and what a person's deepest and most ultimate love is. I think Romans 1, many passages, but Romans 1 gives us this picture again. For although they neither knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That was the verse we just looked at a moment ago. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Is that against all reason, despite what the mind is thinking, and with the guiltiest of conscience, the passions have taken control of the heart, and the passions now dictate to the will, what the course of actions will be, and how they're going to feel about it. All of these things coming together inside the heart. This is why it is so important. It's what Paul Tripp refers to as the principle of inescapable influence. It is that whatever rules the heart will exercise inescapable influence over the person's life and behavior. You've probably seen this in, sometimes in little children, that if children want, really want something, that's, that's all they can think about. And, be, and, if they've, and maybe there was a Christmas present that they really wanted to get, and they didn't get that one Christmas present. And even though they got, a, they got 15 other awesome Christmas presents, without that one Christmas present, they're still mad. And they didn't have a good Christmas present because they didn't get the one thing that they wanted. Why? It's because whatever is ruling the heart has an inescapable influence over the whole of a person's life. Tim Keller ties these things together in a phrase that's actually worth memorizing. He says, whatever captures the heart's trust and love 
also controls the feelings and behavior. What the heart finds, I'm sorry, what the heart most wants, the mind find reasonable, the emotions find valuable, and the will finds doable. Think about that. What the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find valuable, and the will finds doable. The passions of the heart have a determinative influence, a coordinating influence on the other activities that a person engages in. I'm sure you've seen this maybe in your own life and certainly in the life of somebody else, that if there is somebody, take your, take your pick of issues, let's say that there is a person that they are infatuated with, and they've decided that they want to marry this person, and this person is an awful person for them to marry. But they have decided that their heart, their heart wants to marry this person. doesn't matter what you're going to say to them. Not really. Because if their heart wants it, their mind has come up with a rational way to excuse all of the bad behaviors and all of the concerns. And the will finds that if people are opposed to it, they have come up with a way that they can get this done with or without anybody else. And you see this continuing on in every other area of life. Scripture makes this clear. Um, makes it clear when you understand more deeply about man's problem. It says the problem of our heart is that the intention of man's heart is evil from its youth. That there's no one righteous, no, not one. That our hearts are spiritually sick. That the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That the heart is our fundamental place that relates to God and our fundamental problem, our fundamental spiritual problem, our fundamental problem in all of life is that our heart is sick and distorted in its relationship with God. Why is it so important to understand all of these things together in the heart as a whole? Because if we don't, people will try to address the heart and end up missing it altogether. A common way that that happens is people try to, address the, they try to address the heart by dealing with the mind. And they end up missing it. They, try to, they miss the heart by trying to transform the mind. Now, transforming our thinking is, is necessary. But to tell someone who is depressed or someone who is anxious or someone who doesn't want to live in somewhere in Maryland because they really want to live somewhere else, and you say to them, stop it. Stop thinking like that. God loves you, that's all you need to think about. Is that going to change that person? By no means. The truth is necessary, but it's not enough. It's not enough to simply just say, you're thinking wrong, stop thinking wrong, start thinking right. You need the truth. But that's the, that doesn't reach the deepest parts of the heart. We must go deeper and ask why. <clears throat> why is this truth so convincing to me? Why do I hold to this conviction? Similarly, you've probably also come across people who focus on the heart, and fo I'm sorry, focus on the mind, and they say, you know what? Romans 12.1 says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That way you will be able to know what God's will is and, and be able to test it and to discern it. So what we need is we need right thinking, and if I just think right, then I'm going to start acting rightly. Certainly right thinking is absolutely necessary. But I'm sure you have met people, you've probably met Christians, who had lots of biblical knowledge, Christians who had lots of information, 
lots of really good theology and little love. And little love. People who were cold and judgmental. People who were arrogant in their intellectualism. Who had their mind seemingly right, but it did not penetrate the heart even in the truths that they themselves were proclaiming. So we can miss the heart just by focusing on the mind. You can also miss it by focusing on them on the wrongly just focusing on the motions. Again, necessary to do, but it's not simply enough. If someone is sad and you just say to them, you know, you're just feeling wrong. Stop feeling like that. Be filled with joy. The Bible says, be filled with joy. Stop being sad. Stop being angry. Be filled with joy. Does that change a person? No, it usually just makes them more mad, right? You shouldn't be mad about this. Usually does not go over very well. Because there's something else that's going on. Simply saying stop at the emotions doesn't do it. You must ask why. Why is my heart feeling this way? Why am I sad in this situation? Why, why, does, this make me, why does this make me so angry? Why is my anger in this situation disproportional to the offense that was committed? What is going on in the deeper parts of my heart? Similarly, sometimes you know people who try to deal with the heart by convicting the conscience. All of us have probably met people who live their life and try to control people through emotional manipulation. You know, the way they do it is that they focus on guilt-based motivation, trying to control people by instilling guilt or fear or indebtedness. Many people have guilt where none is warranted because of the conscience. For other people, it's miss the heart by focusing on the will. This is a perennial trap in parenting. It's the thought that if I can get my children to obey, and if my children obey rightly and they obey responsively, and they obey when I want them to obey, then that's the goal. I've got respectful, obedient children. Check. But it's entirely possible to have respectful, obedient children whose hearts are far from the Lord. One image of this that is so impressed upon my mind was this girl who came to St. Mary's College, and she called me after she graduated from high school, and she called me to interview me about the beliefs of our church because she wanted to find a good church to get connected to. It's a great thing. Love it when that happens, when, when, people, when students are going to college looking for a church that they're going to get connected to. And so she asked me some questions about our view on spiritual gifts and how did I reconcile that with 2 Corinthians, this verse and that verse. And it's an interesting conversation. And she came down to church, and she came here the first two weeks. And her semester ended as she was passed out in the pond face down with alcohol poisoning. What happened? What happened? Is that she was in a community where her, she, her will was trained. I mean, her, she was obedient. She knew her theology. She knew it on the spot. But what her heart longed for was for the approval of people. And in the community that she was raised in, she got the approval of people by being the best possible Christian and knowing the most theology and being the most zealous and most zealous and the most ardent. But all of a sudden, when you go to a very liberal college campus, that's not so popular. And what is popular, at least for her and the circles that she started running with, was getting the approval of people by the extent of partying that she could go into and how she could push the boundaries. 
totally missed the heart, unfortunately, much to her parents' grief and sadness, and, and my own, I would add to that. So given those things, how do we actually attend to the heart? How do we actually deal with change and change that affects us at a deep and, and change that affects us at a deep and significant level? Thomas Chalmers, um, who uh, we use a number of their stuff from the Chalmers Center related to our mercy ministries and a variety of other things. He gave a message one time which was entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's a great title. Really difficult reading. Great title, though. And Chalmers begins by saying, asking this question, how do people change? What fundamentally causes change in a person's life? And he says this, he says, there are two ways in which a person may attempt to displace from the human heart its love of the world. There's two ways that if someone loves the world, has the, lust of, you know, the pride of life, the desires of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, there's two ways that you can change that. He says the first way you can do it is by demonstrating the vanities, the world's vanities related to this. What he's saying is one way that you can change somebody is by convincing them that what they're after is really empty. Okay, you want this, uh, this is what you're most after, but you know if you're going to go down this path, there's going to be bad consequences, it's not going to turn out what you see, what it's going to seem like. If you go down this path, if you pursue this relationship with this person, he doesn't care about you, it's going to be really bad, it's not going to turn out great. And you convince them by the vanity of the world, you convince them all the reasons what's inherently wrong with whatever a person wants and whatever a person's doing. There's something, that's bad, that's going to be bad for you. That's one way to do it which he says is ineffective. The other way is by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment, so as that, so as that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. He's saying, if you want to change, the way that you principally change is by getting a vision of something more glorious than what your heart is after. That you have a desire for something that is grander and bigger and greater than what it is that your heart wants in this particular moment. And so from this, I would give us three things that I would encourage you to evaluate yourself on and to focus on as you go into this, number, this year. How do you care for your heart? The number one thing that you need to do is you need to long for God. You need to long for God. John Piper writes, he says, God is still the most important, most valuable, most satisfying, most all-encompassing, and therefore most relevant reality in the world. He says, God is the most important thing in the entire world and the most important thing in your life. He is the most valuable. There is nothing that is more precious and can be more precious. There is nothing more precious than knowing God and living in relationship with God and giving God the glory that he is due and glory that he deserves. There is nothing more satisfying, not more experiences, not more money, not a better school, not the right person, not the right children. There is nothing more satisfying to the deep aching and the deep desires of your heart than God himself. There is nothing more all-encompassing. There is nothing that relates to all of life in everything that you do every moment. There is nothing more, more, there is nothing more encompassing than God himself. 
and therefore he is the most relevant reality in the world. What this means is that within us, the number one thing that needs to be our biggest, grandest, our heart's greatest longing is God himself. Because that is the way the heart works. And this world understands that. This world understands that the way that people respond is by engaging their heart and the thing that they hold up as the grandest vision of their future. It's how advertising works. Consider it. The iPhone X. Right? What is the advertising that goes along with it? It's like, wow. If I had the iPhone X, I'd be able to send text messages, and at the bottom of my text message, it would say, sent from my iPhone X. And there's this desire that not do I simply have a phone that works, but all of my friends know that I have the iPhone X. I mean, I must really be somebody, because I'm the one that has the iPhone X, and all the one people that know that. Take your issue. Maybe you're one that really wants a new truck. And you look at the, and you see the ads for the F-150, maybe the F-1, the Raptor version, with the steel plates on the bottom, and you look at that truck and you're like, man, if I had that, I could go anywhere. I could go in the mud. I could drive on the beach. I could take my two bags of mulch from Lowe's and and stick it in my eight-foot bed and drive home. And I could drive my truck backwards over my yard and take out my two bags of mulch and put them on my garden. It would be amazing. And man, if someone was stuck in the snow, I could be the guy that could drive my truck to get them out of the snow, right? Those are the things, the messages that are in there. And what are they doing? They're appealing to a vision within your heart. They're appealing to a deep longing and a deep desire that says, if you have this, you'll be somebody. Your life will be better. Things will be a little bit more significant. You'll finally get the peace and quiet. You'll get the recognition that you finally deserve. And it appeals to the deep desires of our heart. But Piper continues. He says, but to live as though anything else is more interesting than God himself. To live as if anything else is more interesting, more insightful, more satisfying. If there is something that consumes your thoughts more than God himself. If when you are anxious and worried and you are dealing with the anxiety and the fear and the emotions that you are wrestling with. And the things that consume your thoughts in your quiet moments. Piper is saying, if there is anything that you find more interesting, more insightful, more satisfying, it's a symptom of soul sickness. It's a symptom that your heart is not right with the Lord. It is a symptom that you are being impacted by the inescapable influence of something else that is ruling and controlling your heart. Piper goes on to say, he says, you know, God calls for our obedience. But the way that God calls for our obedience is not by coercing it, but by giving us a vision of his glory. By giving us a vision of something so much bigger and so much grander that that would be the one thing that our hearts desire. He says this, he says, when God sends his emissaries, people like me, preachers, to declare, your God reigns, to proclaim the good news of scripture. God's aim is not to constrain man's submission by an act of raw authority. He's saying God does not want you to be obedient to him because he's saying, listen, if you don't obey me, if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, man, you don't know who you're messing with, buster. 
and you need to obey me, and you need to do this because I can do whatever I want to you whenever I want to do it, and I've already said that I'm going to do it. That's why you need to obey me. That's not what God does. What God does is this. His aim is to ravish our affections with irresistible displays of his glory. What God does is he wants us to see the wonders of who Jesus Christ is. The wonder of God himself, that he is the one who exists in all glory, that he is the sovereign Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth, that he is the one who sustains everything, every planet, every particle, every cork and molecule by the word of his power. He is the one who is inherently beautiful, the one upon whom our gaze will be fixed upon him. We would just stand there and just say, wow, it is so beautiful. That is so glorious. I cannot conceive of anything more glorious than God himself. And all I want in my life is to know that and to be near it and to experience it and to to taste and see and to know the Lord and to know his glory. It's indeed actually what you see in the writers of Scripture many times over. One such verse, Psalm 84, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. You hear what the psalmist is saying? He's like, he says, if you get a picture of who God is, if you understand his glory, I would rather have one day, just, just one day in the courts of the glory of God I would rather have one day than a thousand days satisfying every desire of my body and my flesh. If I could just have one glimpse of who God is, if I could have the lowest place in the house of God, just opening the door and letting everyone else in, and I don't even get all the way in, that would be better than filling my life with anything in this world that could satisfy me. It's what motivated the psalmist. It's what motivated the apostle Paul. He says, Paul says, he says, for I run the race. He says, so I press on that I might might attain the crown that is set out for me. That Paul sees that there is a bigger picture and a bigger reality of the glory of God and it drives his life. And for you and for me, we need to grow in our longing for God. We need to grow in our vision of the glory of God so that the biggest thing in our heart, the number one thing that is our greatest desire is God and God alone. I know that doesn't make sense to some of you. I know that doesn't make sense. And if, that's, and if that's you, that's okay. If you realize it's not where you should be. If you realize it's not, a, like, that's, this doesn't make sense to me. That's a problem. And if it is a problem, we would love to help you with that and love, love to help you in your understanding. But the biggest thing to set your heart upon as you go into this new year is to create is a longing for God. Two very practical ways to do this. One, is to know your Bible. Why? Because it alone is given the power to discern the heart. The Word of God is living and active, as Gary read earlier, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intention of, of the heart. Who can understand the heart? Not me. Who can understand the heart? God alone. Who sees the heart? God alone. Who gives insight into the heart? God does, and he does so through his word. What that means is that you need to know your Bible. And you need to know it and to know it well, because nothing has the power to change hearts like the word of God. 
Bart Ehrman, who is an anti-Christian professor at the University of North Carolina. Some of you know his name. In his Introduction to Christianity class, he begins by asking a question. And he says to his students, how many of you have read Harry Potter? Everybody's hand goes up, right? It's great, you know, with the magic, Hogwarts, all that stuff. He says, if J.K. Rowling released another book, decided to release the next one in the Harry Potter series, would you read it? Absolutely. It's great. It's fun. It's entertaining. I haven't read them, by the way. Everyone else in my family has, but I haven't. Okay. He says, how many of you have read Harry Potter? He's like, he says, if, he, if J.K. Rowling re released another book, would you read it? Yeah, absolutely. And then he says the question, how many of you have read the Bible? Only a handful of hands goes up. And he says, you who are Christians, you believe that there is a book that was written by God? A book that was authored by God himself, and you haven't read it? Ehrman goes on to describe the hypocrisy of Christians and, about, and how he will give them enlightenment into Scripture. But his chastisement stands. As Christians, do you know the Bible better than you know Harry Potter or whatever your favorite book is? As Christians, do you know the Word of God, the one thing that has the ability to pierce and discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So when we say know the Bible, what do I mean by that? Let me just give you a, a quick test. It's to say, do you know the Bible and what the Bible says on important issues beyond stop it? Beyond anger is bad, stop it. Lust is bad, stop it. Do you know what the Bible says about and how Scripture gives you the resources to have an abundant life in the areas of life of the greatest struggle? So, what does it mean to know your Bible? It means to know the Bible's events and characters to be able to put them in order. It means that you can articulate how the books of the Bible fit together. How does the letters of the New Testament, can you articulate how those letters intersect with the book of Acts? Can you describe how past the first 13 books of the Old Testament, how the Psalms, the Prophets, all the other books in the Old Testament, how those books fit into the first 13 books? Can you do that? This is basic knowledge that Christians should have. When it comes to issues of the heart, can you articulate how to have a relationship with the God, how to have a relationship with God, actually showing it from the Bible itself? Not by just telling people, but actually showing it from the pages of Scripture. And when it comes to issues of your heart, can you, can you identify and show how the Bible speaks to such issues as anger and fear or lust or suffering? Or what do you do when life is out of control? Or when things seems unfair, can you actually go to Scripture and say, let me tell you how the Word of God gives life in your sorrow in this moment? That's what it means to know the Bible. It means to know it and to be familiar with it. And it's the beginning of the year, great time to start a Bible reading plan. One of my favorite, for the love of God, we've got the books on the table. You can also go to this website and get a daily email sent to you. If you, this single-handedly is, I think, the single best resource for understanding the whole of Scripture and how the Bible fits together. If you follow the plan, you'll read through the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice in a year, or you can extend that out over two years. That's a little extensive for you. If you go to the ESV Bible app, there's about a dozen different Bible reading plans that you can have there. And the point is, it's not so much which plan do you choose, but to have a plan and to, ha and to stick, stick to it. This is mine. I keep it inside my Bible. Honestly... I, I miss chunks, like this past week. I miss chunks. But you know what? It doesn't really matter. 
Because what I do is I'm not like, oh, no, I missed a whole bunch, is that I just go back and I just make this as a pattern in my life to immerse myself in the Word of God and just to make it a regular rhythm of what I'm doing, and I would encourage you to do the same. If you're wanting to understand how Scripture speaks to the heart, this devotion, New Morning Mercies, also on our book table, is probably the single best devotion that deals with how Scripture speaks to heart issues. And if you use this devotion, make sure you read the Bible passage that goes with it, because the devotion is not inspired by God but the text of Scripture is. Finally, as a family, if you want to start in, in, have your family know God's Word and you've got little children, this is the book that I wish every adult would read. And if your children are an excuse to do that, great. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible and helps to, gives you a picture of how the whole Bible fits together. It's a great time to start up, start up with that. Third thing that I would encourage you to do, second practical one, is that long for, long for God, know your Bible, and finally, join a health club. It's January. It's time to join a health club, but not one on physical fitness, but one that focuses on spiritual health. We call them community groups in Sunday school classes. They're about to get going in two weeks. Hebrews tells us, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, speaking to Christians, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What does the writer of Hebrews say is a problem with Christians, not with non-Christians, but with Christians? A problem with Christians is that they develop an evil, unbelieving heart. Christians have a heart that becomes calloused and hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Their heart and their conscience become seared, leading them to fall away from the living God. And what Hebrews, as one place among many in Scripture says, the antidote, the cure for this spiritual ailment is to encourage one another daily. That you are engaged in active, accountable relationships with people who will speak into your life. That you invite people to speak into your life and speak into the difficult areas of your heart, places where you yourself are deceptive and tend to deceive yourself. You take all these things together. How's your checkup? <laughs> Bible's picture is that the heart is the seat of all that we are as a person. It's the seat of our emotions, our will, our mind, our passions, the deep desires, and ultimate loves. It is the center of your relationship with God. How is your heart? How are the desires of your heart? And so as we had, head into a new year, may your heart come alive. May your heart long for God. May your heart and the health of your heart improve through the study of the word of God and through the people of God encouraging you. And may, above all else, may your heart pulse, may it throb with a yearning for God himself. Let us pray to that end. Heavenly Father, you alone know the heart. You alone, you alone see it. You alone discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and Lord, you weigh it. Father, we confess to you that our hearts are deceptive, that we're prone to deceive ourselves. And so, Father, we ask that you would send your spirit into our hearts to awaken it, to remove layers of callousness and hardening, that you would soften it so that you would, your spirit would dwell in us so that our heart would move to will and to work in obedience to your word. Lord, would you give us a vision in our hearts of your glory, 
that we would desire you above all else. In your son's name we pray, amen.